Rabia. Hey, Ellen. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I was thinking I should just start calling you Marsh. I feel like Marsh. It's, yeah. Hey, Marsh. Like we're old, old school detectives. You know, like yeah. all grizzled. Hey, Marsh. Marsh and Chaudhry <laughs> on the case, and we have like cigars or yeah. like a pipe. That would be super fun. Well, welcome everyone to Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case. Welcome if you're new and hi again if you aren't. And we are here on our true crime talk show. And today we are welcoming not only a decorated journalist, podcaster, badass, but our dear friend who we love and adore. Mm -hmm. It is the Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, guys. Nice to see you. Welcome, Maggie. I'm so excited to have you. You are a true crime legend. You really are. Thank you. And I listen to you guys yeah. all the time. Even though I didn't know what a DB was, I swear I listen. <laughs> so <laughs> we know you do because we get text messages. I know. From you I text Wait, what you. about this? <laughs> It's kind of my favorite thing. Whenever there's something that Maggie gets really passionate about, she'll like, we'll have a text chain and she's like, did you think about that? Did you think about that? We're like, yeah, Maggie, we only get like an hour and some minutes to tell this story. But I have been texting with you guys all week long because I, again, I want this case to be a 16 part series. But before we jump in, for those of you who live in a, under a true crime rock, please let me just give a brief synopsis of Maggie Freeling. She has a teeny tiny, shiny new Pulitzer Prize for being a reporter and a producer and a badass. Wait, wait, can I stop you for a second? Maggie, what what does a Pulitzer look like? What does it actually look like? There isn't one. Wait, excuse me, what? There, it's, I got a sheet of paper and then it's, (laughs) it's those two little like coins with, I think- yeah, it I thought they gave you like a plaque with the coins or the no, actual coins. No, no, no. Really that sad. Is the the really most prestigious sad. award. I, I got a piece of papers. <laughs> Holy crap! Whatever it is, I'm gonna print myself up one tonight. I'm printing one up myself. I know. Right? Like anyone's <laughs> just gonna, anyone's gonna deny that. But she is the host and producer of Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. She also has hit podcasts, Murder in Alliance and Unjust and Unsolved, all focusing on wrongful convictions and crimes that are often left unsolved. She is also an adjunct professor. We need to talk about that because she has so many tattoos. You couldn't possibly be a professor, right, Maggie? I'm too dumb to be a professor because of my tattoos. So you're a really bad influence on those really bad influence <laughs> really, on those kids, man. Really bad influence, yeah. Yeah. Among her several accolades, she was an NPR Next Generation Radio Fellow and 2019 Ford Foundation 50 Women Can Change the World in Journalism. And in Amazing. 2023, she was honored during the World Woman Hour by the World Woman Foundation for breaking the role as female changemaker. There are so many things we can say about you, but you are smart. You speak your mind, which of course we love. You are such a pillar and an icon and a gem in this community. And we're just happy to call you friend and happy that you can be here with us. I feel the same about both of you. So this is very exciting. And I feel really passionately about this case. And I'm glad that we're doing it because it is cuckoo bananas. Well, it is cuckoo bananas. Maggie, where are you right now? Right now you are like out in the desert somewhere, right? Yeah. So I wanted to tell listeners, um, this is so tragic, but I'm in the desert and there is a power outage because that happens in the desert. So now I have to be at my friend's bar in an office. And I'm so sorry if you can hear the bar. That's fine. 
I think it's a lot of fun to be coming in from a bar. There's nothing tragic <laughs> about that. You're going to have a good time. Okay. The after party awaits you, I think. Yeah. It have a glass of wine yeah. if you're thirsty, Maggie. We're chill around around these parts. <laughs> yeah. But we have so much to discuss about the case that you have chosen. But first, before we dive in, we absolutely have to play our game called Three Quick Things. And Rabia is chomping at the bit to give you her question today. Yeah. So what's your question? Oh my gosh. I have, okay. I have a two-parter because um, I don't have to follow the rules, Ellen. No. Uh, just like you don't have you to follow. You make the rules, baby. <laughs> here's, here's what I want to know. If there is one case you desperately wish you could work on, what would that be? And who would you like to work on it with? Like name like a dream investigator. You Put down your hand, Ellen. Name. <laughs> <laughs> if you could team up with one person you've always wanted to work with. On a case you've always wanted to work with, who would that person and per case be? Honestly, Rabia, I would love to team up with you, but I feel like it would be a case that maybe you wouldn't normally uh, do. Um, the Long Island serial killer case has always been like uh, my, I grew up on Long Island. My parents went to buy the house after, you know, it was up for sale when they found Shannon Gilbert's body. So like, mm -hmm. I'm very obsessed with that case, very much yeah. so. I know so many of the players in it. Um I, w I would say the Lisk case, and I and it's certainly. Have not you ever like tried? Have you ever been like, "Hey, I'm right here. Like, give me the case files, people." So, yes, I'm actually mm. working on something right now. Uh, oh, related, okay. yeah. Okay. It's not Lisk, but it's tangential. Mm. I have a guy saying he's wrongfully convicted um, for the murder of his girlfriend, and he actually has a very good case for it being. Someone who was a part of the Lisk, uh, wow, situation. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I'm kind of diving into it that way, um, but also like Israel Keys, man, Josh Hallmark. I would love to just be his researcher. Mm. You know. Mm. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. Nice. Good answer. Good answers. Yeah. What was the two part? Oh, the case and who would and you want? Who would you want? Yeah. 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 Okay, I'm going to put aside my emotions that you didn't choose me, Maggie. Sorry, and just assume, I just assume that, honestly, that my research is just too thorough and it's just yes. too daunting. So yes. that's where I'm going to go. With yes. It's, yes. A color, it's a color coding. I was going to say really the color coding is too. People. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, the, the ADHD brain, it works for my brain. I want Robinson, people to know that there is so much color coding. She actually has to use the color peach to code some of the stuff. Like she's run out of colors. <laughs> She this does. is how many colors are used. Blue, green, dark blue, light purple, peach, orange, purple, pink. <sighs> but here's the funny thing. I never realized it, even though the colors are all over the page, I never realized it was color coded. I just thought, I don't know why. I didn't, I don't, I just didn't pay attention to the colors. <laughs> I made that key wow. at the top just for you, Rabia. I ignored it. Okay? I totally ignored it. And I ignore, Rabia sends me like <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica. She sends me like paragraphs. I'm like, what do you want me to do with that? I don't know what you want me to, you want me to read that? You yes. want me to make sense of that? <laughs> you know what? But I'm going to change is... my answer. I'm going to work with Ellen instead because I oh, like okay. the color coding to be okay. honest. Yes. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. You're not getting color, color coding with me. Everything <laughs> I actually select all and then click black. Yeah. <laughs> all, everything. She, she just goes to Wikipedia, copy, cut, paste. That's yeah. all she does. Maggie, oh, I'm going to go off true crime for a minute. And people who don't know you, first of all, you are the weensiest little Polly Pocket pixie. <laughs> people are so, whenever they meet you in person, they're so taken aback by how weensy and tiny you are. And this little weensy, tiny badass full of fuck bombs and 
such is tattooed from head to toe. Tell me your most favorite tattoo Mm. and tell me the story behind it and why you love it. I don't know if there's a favorite, honestly. Um, I have a lot that I really hate. Oh, okay. You know, I have a couple matching with my mom. Mm -hmm. She loves getting matching tattoos. It's like her thing. So we have a bunch. I'd say those are probably my favorite, my mom tattoos. How many matching ones do you guys have? Two or three. There could be three. And I have one for my dad as well. We have a matching one. So I've got a few family tattoos. A couple tattoos are art um, drawings my brother did in his sketchbook. So there's a lot of family stuff happening. So cool. And just so you know, and this is very, very powerful. My daughter thinks you're the coolest. Mm. I am an asshole. (laughs) You are the coolest. That's how mother, that's how parenting works. I get to be cool aunt. I love this. I love this. Yes. You are absolutely cool. aunt. Ellen, do you have any tattoos? Yeah, I have two. I have a birth order tattoo. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they each have one filled in. And then I have a ladybug um, because my grandfather and I used to collect ladybugs. But I have so many more I want to get. I really, really want to get Lola's first time she wrote her name. Oh. Because I have it saved and I have that planned tattoo. I have a couple of them. Rabia has a massive picture of me on her back. It's creepy (laughs) but beautiful. We all knew that. Rabia like undresses and is just fucking covered. Yeah. And the more I tone up, um, you know, it just kind of, I don't know, it it, it changes Ellen's face. (laughs) It's like instant bones forever. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, Maggie, this is sort of a very easy question for you because some of our guests aren't necessarily in the true crime space. But our third question we ask all of our guests is how does true crime fit into your life? Oh, my God. How does, it, how does it not fit into my life? Um, I mean, I guess when you work this, it's like every day of my life. But I liked true crime when it first came out. When ID first came out, I was the demographic. I think I was in like mm. middle school. And I always say this, but, um, you know, I would come home from school and I would turn on disappeared or like whatever. And I would just watch it for hours. And my mom would come home and be like, think I was just the biggest freak weirdo. Like what is wrong with my daughter <laughs> watching murder shows? It was like, it was like porn. I would like shut it and like hide. Like I would like run away from <laughs> investigation discovery. Um, so I've always loved true crime and I got really lucky when I was asked to do the Maura Murray show and it just kind of became my life. But you had a background in journalism already, right? Before that. Mm -hmm. And what was your beat? What was your beat? I was doing, so I started off doing like international women's issues. I wound up working at, um, NPR's Latino USA. So primarily Latinx issues. I was doing border Mm. reporting and detention center reporting. So I was going to detention centers and I spent a lot of time on the border. You were inching closer and closer to the space anyways. Yeah. 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 So it was kind of like a natural progression in that way, but yeah. Yeah. It's weird that you did anything with women's issues. I I feel like that would be like a five minute topic. Women don't really have any issues. No issues. We're doing great. That's just like open and shut. How boring. Rabia, do you struggle to save money every month? I mean, struggle might be too strong a word, but I like to save money. How's that? (laughs) I also like to save money, and I am very, very good with my money, but I will be very honest. Something that I always got dinged for was subscriptions that I've forgotten about. You know, like you sign up for a free trial of something, and then you're like, oh, I'll cancel that when I no longer need it. 
and you completely forget about it. Yep. And how are you supposed to track all that down? Well, we, we can tell you how with Rocket Money. Rocket Money, because there are subscriptions for everything. You can get a subscription for streaming services. You can get a subscription for razors, for toilet paper. And Rocket Money is going to keep track of all of that. It's going to tell you what you have, ask you if you need it, because guess what? The average person thinks they're paying about $80 a month in their average subscriptions. No, no, my friends, you're actually paying closer to $200. Yeah. That's why I use rocket money because I hate to waste money. Think about that. $200. That, that means at least $120 worth of stuff you don't even remember that you subscribed to. I mean, even beyond the money, the principle of it makes me crazy. I hate the, the fine print and you forget and you're like, oh, it just automatically renews, you know, your subscription. But look, Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It finds and cancels those subscriptions. It monitors your spending. You can easily cancel the ones you don't want just through the app. You don't have to go to every single individual subscription company, whatever, and do it individually. And it can also recommend custom budgets based on how you've spent in the past. They'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. I'm not going to tell you how I know about that. <laughs> so stop wasting your money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash solve the case. That's rocketmoney.com slash solve the case. Rocketmoney.com slash solve the case. One of the things that makes me craziest, I mean, like for those of us who are trying to take better care of ourselves, take things that are not just good for you, but are helpful to you is learning later, like years later that, oh, your body can't actually absorb such and such. I mean, I have heard for years how so many supplements and other things we take, like are, it did just pass right through your body. But that's why I was really excited to hear that Next Evo does not and will not do that. Yeah, our bodies just doesn't absorb CBD oil well. So you could be absorbing as little as 6% of oh what is God. on the label. That's I know insane. that is infuriating because you're paying good money for stuff. Next Evo Naturals has developed a water-soluble form of CBD. It has been clinically tested multiple times, and it is proven to work faster and absorb four times better. So you can stay calmer or sleep better. The sleep is my favorite because we all need to sleep. We're all stressed. We mm -hmm. all have a million things running through our mind. But why would you take something and spend it if it's not actually going to work and help you? Yeah. I mean, obviously, CBD cannot work until and unless it actually gets in your body. And only Next Evil has proven that their all-natural gummies and capsules absorb four times better than most oil-based products. And here's the thing. There are so many choices of CBD right now. And at the end of the day, you have to go with mm -hmm. brand data. And it's all there. So now you can try their brand new extra strength daily wellness CBD gummies. They are two times stronger than the regular strength. And like I always say, it just brings my shoulders down. Mm, yep. Don't waste your time with oil-based CBD that might not work. Upgrade to better natural solutions from NextEvo. Go to nextevo.com and use promo code SOLVETHECASE to get 25% off. That's 25% off at nextevo.com, promo code SOLVETHECASE. Well, we have to jump into this case, so please Tell our audience what case you chose and just briefly why, why you chose it. And then we're going to get into our crash course. And we have so much to solve in this case. That is a solved case. I think most people know Menendez in this room, probably. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, we're going to be covering the 
case of Lyle and Eric Menendez. If you asked any novice true crime connoisseur what murder trial remains etched in their brains, most people would say the O.J. Simpson murder trial. That's because outlets like Court TV played a massive role in the day-to-day coverage, the likes of which the average person had never seen in the mid-90s. But some people forget it was actually the Menendez brothers' trial that showed the inner workings of a real live courtroom drama. The trial transfixed the nation. In fact, more than 1.3 million people would tune into the saga of two wealthy, spoiled boys who killed their parents in cold blood. So by the time the Simpson trial came along, Court TV was a well-oiled machine with hours upon hours of testimony, expert insight, and everyday people were able to watch the legal minutia in the courtroom. Moreover, this type of coverage turned judges, lawyers, and even witnesses into celebrities. When was the last time you thought about Cato Kalin? Eric and Lyle Menendez became household names and a part of lunchtime conversation for people who couldn't turn away from this trial. Eric and Lyle Menendez, you know the type, you probably went to high school with them. Wealthy boys who lived in a $4 million, 23-room, Mediterranean-style mansion. They drove far too fancy cars for kids. I mean, who drives an Alfa Romeo to school? They had designer clothes, they traveled first class, and they always got their way. The handsome young men were good at sports and fairly smart. It seemed that they felt they were entitled to everything, and the narrative was the spoiled rich boys thought they could get away with anything. It was easy to roll your eyes at the Menendez brothers on trial 30 years ago, that is, and those stupid sweaters. The color of painted Easter eggs, an obvious attempt to look younger, more wholesome, and most certainly less capable of murdering their parents while in their home. Police later found out they went on lavish and ridiculous spending sprees after they lost their parents. I mean, who does that? Obviously greedy kids looking for their multi-million dollar inheritance, right? Unlike other cases we have covered, the Black Dahlia, Kendrick Johnson, and John JonBenet Ramsey, there is no mystery around the murder of Jose and Kitty Menendez. We know what happened. Eric and Lyle confessed to the savage murders. But why? Why would they brutally murder their parents, who, to the outside world, provided them with the good life? Eric and Lyle were born into privilege and wealth to Jose and Kitty Menendez. Jose had fled Cuba after the revolution and stayed with family before earning a college scholarship for swimming. He married Mary Louise Kitty Anderson in college. Shortly after their wedding, they moved to New York City, where Jose's persistence had him rapidly working up from dishwasher to working in the fast-paced world of entertainment. In the early 80s, Jose became head of RCA Records, where he helped to sign acts like Duran Duran and Menudo. The couple had two sons, Eric and Lyle, and the family of four moved to Los Angeles. What other town would the wealthy elite settle down in other than Beverly Hills? Living the life of the 1%, the Menendez brothers were pushed to succeed by the competitive nature of their father. Lyle had business smarts, and Eric was a gifted tennis player. Private coaches and tutors were hired because anything less than the best was not tolerated. Eric grew up worshipping Lyle. The brothers were described as extremely close despite their contrasting personalities. Lyle was described as having a strong, witty personality, while Eric was described as sensitive and quiet. Even though they had everything money could buy, as they got older, they started acting out. Eric took part in a number of burglaries and was forced to attend therapy, while Lyle was suspended from Princeton for a year for plagiarism. 
but there were far more nefarious dealings behind their gated mansion. On October 18, 1989, Eric and Lyle Menendez purchased shotguns at a Big Five sporting goods store in San Diego, over 100 miles away from their family's mansion in Beverly Hills. But then life carried on as usual. On October 19th, their parents chartered a yacht and took them shark fishing. But the very next day, on August 20th, they burst into their home and discharged 15 shots into their parents while the couple was watching television on their couch. Eric said that he fired first, but in the end it was Lyle that landed the bullet in the back of Jose's head and shot the fatal blow to Kitty's face. They called Let's rewind. Exactly seven days before the murders, Jose told Eric that he's not going to live at UCLA campus during the upcoming school year as he had planned to. Why would this be such a blow to Eric? Every kid dreams of living in the dorms and living their lives as young people. Drinking, partying, and sex like all young people do when they get a taste of independence. But it wasn't that. It was because he had endured years of aggressive sexual abuse at the hands of his father. Usually, going to college is one of the most exciting and thrilling times of a young person's life. Not to Eric. This was his chance to escape Jose. He longed to escape the sexual abuse and nonstop trauma of his life. Eric kept this secret from everyone, including his brother Lyle. But on Tuesday, August 15, 1989, Eric finally confessed to his brother that the abuse from Jose was still happening. Lyle had also been sexually abused by his father when he was six through age eight. Back then though, Jose assured Lyle it wasn't happening to his little brother. So on Wednesday, August 16th, Lyle planned to bring his brother back to Princeton with him to save his little brother from his living nightmare. Later that night, Lyle decided to tell Kitty about their plan to leave. At one point, he also told Kitty that Jose had been molesting Eric and it needed to stop. Kitty insisted it was all lies and screamed for him to leave her room. Back to the night of the murders. The couple had been killed by two 12-gauge shotguns, with Jose having been shot multiple times in the arms and once in the head, and Kitty being shot in the torso and face. The initial thought was that they had been the victims of a mob hit, 
the boys weren't even considered suspects at first. Their story of being out at the movies and coming home to find this exceptionally bloody scene checked out. It wasn't until seven months later, the investigation reached a turning point. While speaking to his therapist, Eric confessed to killing his parents along with his brother. The therapist's ex-partner found out and went to the police. On March 8, 1990, Lyle Menendez was arrested, and a few days later, on March 11th, Eric turned himself in. During their trial, the brothers pled guilty and claimed self-defense. Prosecutors, however, argued the Menendez brothers killed their parents to gain access to a $14 million inheritance. The defense built a tragic and detailed case that involved the testimony from not only an emotional Eric and Lyle, but more than 50 witnesses and spanned five months. The defense's case also included evidence of extensive physical and psychological abuse. There were witness accounts from experts in the field of sexual abuse, as well as family members who received emotional confessions from the boys about their years of torture inside their Silver Spoon life. The defense argued the murders were self-defense after the brothers suffered years of sexual abuse from their parents, which led to them ultimately fearing for their lives. Each brother was initially tried separately, and in each trial, their juries could not reach a decision. And in the subsequent trial, Eric and Lyle were tried together. There were several differences in the second trial. Mainly, absolutely no witnesses or talk of sexual abuse was allowed. And so the two were convicted of first-degree murder and were sentenced to life in prison without parole. The brother's story was impossible to corroborate because the alleged villain was dead. By the time the brothers opened up about this abuse, the public had already started hating them and eating up the spoiled rich boy narrative for years. But maybe you've seen the brothers in the headlines lately. Why? A letter which was not offered as evidence at either trial was discovered in 2018 by Marta Cano, Jose Menendez's younger sister. It was a letter from a 13-year-old Eric telling his cousin Andy that Jose Menendez was, quote, massaging his genitals. He went on to write, I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I'm afraid. You just don't know what dad is like, like I do. He's crazy. He warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Not only that, recently ex-members from the band Menudo have come forward with detailed confessions of sexual abuse by Jose Menendez. This newly discovered evidence directly supports what the defense presented at trial. In a recent petition for a new trial, the attorneys argue that the new evidence could have led to a different outcome had it been presented in the brothers' defense. Our 2023 minds can't wrap our heads around not taking into consideration the profound harm and utter horrors that sexual abuse does to victims. The very thought of dismissing such circumstances seems archaic, morally wrong, and just plain cruel. The deep impact of living a life with sexual abuse is a concept we now understand far better than we did 30 years ago. We also didn't have conversations around men being the victims of awful sexual atrocities. While neither brother denies committing the crime, the second trial was conducted without providing the jury with the full story. To an average person, that seems like a gross miscarriage of justice. Today, though, our justice system is flawed to say the least, and self-defense can be applied to a number of situations, including domestic and sexual violence. So, do these men deserve a new trial? Should they be let go with time served? And we can't help but wonder if the case were the Menendez sisters, would there have been a different outcome? Let's talk about it. Rabia, what is your favorite Christmas carol? I got it. Rocking around the Christmas tree. The holidays 
are right around the corner. Oh my Lord. Rabia Anwar Chaudhry. So much stress, so much food, so many guests. Yeah. HelloFresh is here to take one little bit of stress off of your shoulders. It's not even a little bit. It's a lot. I mean, like, because look, while you're planning those big old meals and having all those guests over to do, you still got to feed your family every single day. We all got to eat every single day. And HelloFresh is there to make sure you can do it easily, quickly, affordably. Uh, oh, absolutely affordably. Way cheaper than eating out and actually even cheaper than going to the grocery store. You can choose from up to 45 recipes a week, uh, over a hundred curated picks from the HelloFresh market. And as always, all of the ingredients are farm to table, cook up quick. You can get meals cooked in like 15 minutes. I mean, with all the octopusing that we have to do with yeah. the kids and the work and the this, HelloFresh just makes my life so much easier. You can actually hand it all over to those kids. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. That's what I love about HelloFresh. Here, daughter. Here, teenager. Here's here's step by step how to make these pre-portioned ingredients into a delicious meal for your mother. But the other thing is, this holiday season, HelloFresh is also going to help you reduce your stress because guess what? You can actually order amazing desserts from them for your guests. You can also get charcuterie boards from them. I mean, it's kind of amazing. It is amazing. So go to HelloFresh.com/slash/solve-the-case-free and use code solve-the-case-free for free breakfast for life. You get one breakfast item per box while the subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash solve the case free with code solve the case free. Listen, Rabia, we have so many friends and listeners who have small businesses mm -hmm. and there is so much that goes into growing a business. It's everything rests on your shoulders when you're a small business from social media to getting your products to all kinds of customer service. But Shopify is here and it is here to help. Yep. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to, did we just hit a million order stage? Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you have. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to in-person point of sale. Wherever you are, whatever you're selling, Shopify is there and it has you covered. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. That's a lot. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. It does. It takes so much to make your small business grow, but Shopify is there to make it just a little bit easier. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash solve the case. And that's all in lowercase letters. Go to shopify.com slash solve the case all in lowercase, now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash solve the case. Cha-ching. <laughs> oh, yeah, they have that cute little sound. Cha-ching. Every time yep. you make a sale, we hope you hear that and a lot with your Shopify. Yeah. So specifically, why are you drawn to this case? Is it because it's in the headlines right now, which we'll definitely get to, but why is this the case you wanted to talk about today? So... When the murder happened, I wasn't even born yet. I was still in my mom's belly. So I <laughs> did grow up with this case in a sense. Like I remember watching or seeing clips on court TV of just these boys. Like they still looked like young 
kids to me. So I remember this. I remember growing up with OJ and and John Bonet. Like all of this stuff is so ingrained in me. Like again, I am the demographic of true crime, court TV, all of that. So, you know, it's always been just one of those cases that anything that comes up on it, I'm interested. I just always want to know what's going on with the Menendez boys. It became more interesting to me in the past couple of years when their names started coming up in the headlines again about, you know, filing appeals because they never got a fair trial. And so recently they did file their habeas corpus and then this documentary came out and there have been rumblings for a while about, you know, all of the abuse. And I just thought this was a really timely uh, episode, especially because there's actionable things we can do. We can, you know, Mm -hmm. let people know that they're trying to get a new trial. Right. So let's talk about that because there were two trials. The first trial, the boys were tried separately and those ended up in hung juries, totally deadlocked, which one of my most interesting facts, I didn't actually put it in the research, was Lyle's jury was split down the middle. The six men voted for first degree murder Mm. and the six women voted for manslaughter. Totally separate conversation. So the main thing that I want to start with are the the difference in the trials, because the first trial is that trial we all saw. It was televised all the time. It was the court TV. It was those heart-wrenching testimonies. The defense had 51 witnesses. The boys each took the stand for many, many days. They were able to call all kinds of expert witnesses that had histories with sexual abuse. And it was a very comprehensive trial, which was very different from the second trial where the same judge presided, Judge Weisberg, and he ruled that basically none of the conversations around sexual abuse were to be talked about or permitted, and they limited the number of experts for, you know, between psychiatrists and anyone expert in the field of sexual assault to one. And they were also not allowed to present the testimony of the psychiatrist who had been treating Eric since 1990. So I want to get your thoughts on the differences between the two trials where the final trial, obviously, we know, ended with a first-degree murder conviction and life without the possibility of parole. And then we'll get into where it is now with the habeas habeas corpus. and No, it's just habeas. And all of the bills passed in California since then. Yeah. So so basically, you laid out the two trials and, and really the fundamental and and overarching difference was in the second trial, they were not allowed to bring up the abuse. So that meant that the defense had no defense because that is what happened. The boys were traumatized. They were being abused by their parents um, and they, you know, psychologically traumatized. We we understand what happened. Um, they couldn't use that as an, uh, as a defense in the second trial. They had no defense in the second trial because the prosecution said they murdered their parents for money, spoiled kids. And sure, there's receipts. There's receipts of $90,000 credit card charges. Um, so how do you defend against that? It, it really, yeah. they 
they were set up to fail in that trial. Right. It's exactly what Maggie said. They basically were not allowed to present a defense at all. And there's also the fact that they are a lot older in the second trial too. This makes a difference. I mean, even between the time of the crime and the time time of the first trial, right? Like we are trying to think of them as children who are vulnerable and cannot defend themselves, but it's hard to when they look like grown men. And every few years as this, you know, between the first and the second trial, they're going to look like even older grown men. And there's like, I think they're like nearly 30 by the time the second trial rolls around. I'm not exactly sure, but um, I think that also has an impact, but certainly, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, if if at the second trial, they were presenting kind of the same testimony about, you know, the sexual assault, about the abuse, I do think it would have been even harder for them to convince a jury of it because of just the fact that they look so much much more mature. Mm. Um, And then even, you know, if you're somebody like, you can only repeat a story so many times, you know, and it it come out in a way that's like, feels almost convincing. After a while, you tell even the story of your own trauma enough times, you're not going to come across as traumatized as you're telling it. So Mm, even how they presented as witnesses would have been very different anyway. So um, yeah, they were, they were, they were, you're right. I mean, they were just set up to fail, Maggie, like the second trial. There's no way they could have won them. I was going to say just about, you know, they were older the second trial. Um, Leslie Abramson was an amazing advocate for them. She truly believed, you know, that what happened to them happens. And she really tried for them. And Robbie, I wonder, you know, what you think about she intentionally tried to dress them to look younger, to make them look like boys, to be more sympathetic. And I remember her getting a lot of shit about that. SNL did a bunch of like horrible stuff. But it's exactly what you said, Robbie. She knew that and she needed to let the jury somewhat know that these were boys when this happened. And that's why they kept calling them the boys. Like they were Mm -hmm. being infantilized, but for a very good reason. Yeah. No, it's important to do that. You know, and it's it's interesting because I was, what, like 14 or 15 when this trial took place. And the idea that kids would kill their parents, this is the first time I think I ever heard of, like, that that could even be a thing, that that yeah. even could happen in this world. Um, but it reminds me a lot of kind of like, I love bringing up Scott Peterson just to see Ellen's face. But Scott Peterson and the response of pop culture, like you mentioned Saturday Night Live, the response of so many people was just complete, not just skepticism, but like these guys think they're making idiot fools out of us. Like you think you're, we're idiots. I mean, I just remember thinking even then, and I knew very, obviously I knew very little about like kind of like the details, but I do remember hearing that the boys said they were abused and it was self-defense and I'm like, please, right? I've got a tough mom. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like right. I just thought it was bullshit. And so, but now like the lens at which we th- see these situations trauma, abuse, it's just vastly different 30 years later, you know? And I just think about a lot, so many of these convictions that took place, like not just this case, but so many cases that we don't even know about, right? Under the radar, uh, it would have very, we'd have very different outcomes today. Well, also it just, for lack of better words, sort of like what we said in the crash course is it's just not fair because though the boys, they ran from the law, right? At first, no one even suspected them. And then they went on this massive spending spree and they bought Porsches and they bought Rolexes and they lived at the Beverly Hills Hotel and they were acting out and they were acting in a way that the public immediately vilified them, right? And then and then the abuse came out. But how do you take 
these expert testimonies that were in the first trial, like, for example, I'm going to list the ones that they didn't allow in the second trial. Dr. Ann Burgess, who was an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse, and she classified the scene as having lack of planning, high emotionality, and testified that she absolutely believed the brother's abuse claims. Doctor after doctor, Dr. John Wilson testified that Eric Menendez displayed symptoms of chronic post-traumatic stress disorder and also testified that Eric Menendez suffered from subclass of the disorder known as battered person Mm -hmm. syndrome. Another one said that the sexual abuse may have gone on even longer than Lyle can even remember. That was Dr. John Conti, Dr. Stuart Hart, a psychology professor, said that he interviewed Lyle for 60 hours. Now, the prosecution had someone interview him for 16 hours, and they all absolutely said not only was the trauma very real, very evident in their actions and emotions, the way they told the story with the same amount of detail. And basically, that judge was like, yeah, none of that matters. We just want to know if they killed them. They said they killed them. That is not what we're trying to figure out. We They absolutely killed them. Murder is absolutely wrong. But the thing that has changed, which you brought up, Maggie, is that on September 30th, 2012, Governor Jerry Brown signed into law AB 593, which is known by the Sin of Silence Bill, which allows victims of domestic violence whose expert testimony was limited mm. at their trial court proceedings to refile um, on for, uh, for habeas corpus to allow the expert testimony to weigh in on their defense. So all of these things were passed after their trial. So why aren't they getting a new trial? But obviously the main thing to come out post-trial was two things that happened fairly recently. And one of those things was a letter that was obtained by written from Eric Menendez to his cousin, Andy, who testified in the first trial. And in the letter, Eric wrote, quote, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in and I need to put it out of my mind. Now, this letter wasn't discovered until 2018. Mm -hmm. And it's in his handwriting and it's showing that he wasn't making this up on trial no matter what the prosecution said. So at what point do we say that 30 years out, we made a mistake. Obviously, we know murder is wrong. They should not have murdered their parents. But do they deserve a new trial? Should it have been manslaughter? We just know so much more now. And the conversation around sexual assault from male to male is something that we didn't really talk about 30 years ago. Yeah. And the answer to both your questions is (laughs) yes. It should have been manslaughter (laughs) and they should get a new trial. Yeah. And at the second trial, I believe um, that the judge wouldn't even allow the, the jury to consider a man's, yeah. even if they wanted to convict them of manslaughter instead of first degree murder, they, they couldn't do it. Yeah. He removed that from the 
the possibilities. Yeah. Also, just as early as 2023, a member of Menudo, now remember Jose Menendez, you know, had music dealings with all these bands, Duran Duran, Menudo, like we said in the crash course, but a man by the name of Roy Rossello says that he was drugged and raped by Jose Menendez in their New Jersey home. And another member of the band, Angelo Garcia, also detailed physical, sexual, emotional abuse, talked about, you know, being drugged. And so that's just, you know, more evidence that Jose Menendez was an absolute monster. Yeah, I think I think he, you know, I think that's the way to describe him. He sounds like an absolute piece of shit that like even at his first trial, no one said anything good about him. His sister had nothing nice to say about him. No one had anything nice to say about this man. I know, Maggie, you wanted to talk about the habeas. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've done a lot of post-conviction work, so you generally know how how things go when you say, I've got some new evidence, like get me back in court, you know, um, appellate court, give me a new trial or overturn my conviction, whatever. The, the, the reason I think it's going to be hard for them to like win on this issue is because they're arguing that we have new evidence related to an issue that the judge did not even allow at the trial. Mm. In during which they were convicted. Forget the first trial, right? Pretend like it didn't happen. They had a second trial. Uh, the second trial is how they were convicted. So he did not allow any of this, the, the sexual allegation stuff to come in. And so even if this evidence had been discovered then, if they had it, it would not have been allowed in. So would it have made a difference at trial? I mean, like, it's such a weird standard. Would it have made a difference at the trial, basically? And was it actually discoverable or not? If you're going to make the argument it was not at all discoverable, I can see court saying, well, even if it wasn't discoverable, let's say, well, it should have been discoverable because it was a letter. Somebody had it, right? And why didn't, it, was it a letter that Eric wrote or Lyle wrote? Eric, Eric. wrote it to him. Why didn't Eric remember that he wrote this letter, right? Like, he, like if, if I am the, a prosecutor in this case, I'm going to make the argument that it was absolutely discoverable, but also it wouldn't have made a difference because if the judge had actually allowed, let's say the judge allowed all the sexual allegation evidence in, um, there was so much evidence, even without the letter, they probably the jury might've believed that they were, you know, I mean, I don't know how much that letter would have substance substantially bolstered that belief that either they were, or were not being molested. Well, the letter proved that they weren't just making it up in the moment. That's mm-hmm. what the prosecution was alleging that, Oh, all of a sudden you were raped by your dad. That's really sus. I mean, they denied all allegations right. of the abuse. They the were making trial. it up, but that, Right. In the first right. trial. But the letter shows, you know, he he asks his his cousin, he says, my dad massages my genitals. Yeah. Does your dad do that? Yeah. So that shows a little bit of concrete evidence well, because that even cousin, though- But the cousin testified at the first trial. Yes, so the, the cousin, cousin has testified. testified. The cousin, cousin testified of having personal knowledge of this stuff, right? Like contemporary, contemporaneous knowledge that I was told at the time it was happening yeah. was happening. So if- what I'm saying is if, again, the first trial, we just kind of can't consider for in terms of like for appellate reasons, the appeal is connected to what happened at the second trial. So if at the second trial, all the sexual, all the uh, evidence about the sexual abuse was allowed in, like it was at the first trial. And that cousin once again testified, would this letter have 
made any kind of significant difference in addition to that testimony and all the other evidence that was presented. That's a question. But here, because none of it was allowed, I can actually see the appellate court saying, But how is that fair? Well, I was going to ask, the system's not fair, girl. It's, I know it's, it's actually disgusting because nobody is saying that they didn't do it. Nobody is saying that they shouldn't have done it. They're saying they feared for their lives. Right. Because, you know, they had finally said, if you don't stop this, we're going to expose the family because Eric was on his way to UCLA and and Jose said, "Uh, JK, you're staying home. You're not going to the dorm. So Eric, who had continued to be raped by his dad up until the age of 18, was like, Lyle, I, I have no way out. And he hadn't told his brother. He had kept this secret from his brother. And that's when Lyle finally was like, oh, my God, he's still doing this. So they feared he feared for his life. But here's the problem. Facts don't matter in these proceedings. What happens is if if in the second trial, the judge is like, none of this stuff is allowed. You're not allowed a defense. What happened is then you're allowed to file a direct appeal, which appeals the judge's rulings. Like so the direct appeals are like the judge got all these things wrong. He ruled wrong on these motions, blah, blah, blah. They've done that. They've appealed these issues. The fact that the judge didn't allow this and all the way up to the California Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court said, nope, we're upholding conviction. That's not the kind of issue you can bring up at a habeas. Habeas is just about new evidence. And I mean, I, I just don't know. I'm saying that, you know, the, the way courts work is if they want to do it, they'll find a way to, they'll find the law to make it happen. But I can just as easily see this being denied. Um, I really can. So you don't think that the allegations of the two members of Menudo having been sexually assaulted by the same man ha- is enough evidence or this letter saying that here is written documented evidence because the prosecution was saying, oh, they got their cousins to say that multiple cousins, multiple family members yeah. said that. But this piece of paper, don't you think that holds more weight in showing a history of abuse. I guess we're, what I'm trying to understand is if they weren't, I, Robbie, and I think you were trying to explain this, but I'm trying to connect the dots. So if the habeas is about new evidence pertaining to that trial, but the abuse wasn't in that trial, are you saying that yeah. that means that this evidence is not even related? Well, that's the thing. I mean, like, it's, yeah. it's kind of a procedural yeah. issue right here, yeah. right? Like, it's like, it's not even about the substance of those letters. It's, but, but I, I could be wrong. Right. I mean, like, you know, I could be wrong in terms of how, but I'm just, look, and the other thing is this, is like, when you talk about letters, I mean, you want to talk about letters? We got letters in this case. We have contemporaneous letters from a alibi witness who's like, I was with Adnan and I wrote letters. And you know what the prosecution said? They said, oh, he had, he made her write those letters or they're forged or they're whatever. So there's a million ways that a prosecutor could refute that. I just don't know how the court's going to look at new evidence related if if the basis of that evidence was just like not even admissible at trial like i'm just a little confused about that and i you know i'm sure there's other lawyers who know better than me california attorneys certainly but look i i hope it works you know a lot of times with these with these post-conviction appeals you're just throwing stuff at at the Mm -hmm. wall and hope something sticks Mm -hmm. well let me ask you this so you're saying so yes because in their appeals the appeal said that no errors were made, right? No no errors in the trial were made. Yeah. But 30 years out, how do we not know now 
that how do we not consider the psychological ramifications of abuse, the betrayal, the fear, especially when it comes at the hands of the people that are to protect you? Like, don't we know more about the human condition and how the mind works and how trauma affects us to say that his ruling of not letting any of that abuse in was actually wrong? LaRavia can answer the legal part because I don't know the details, but yes, in a sense, like that's what I see in all these post-conviction reviews all the time is um, with junk science saying there's new science now. There's new science with Mm -hmm. shaken baby syndrome and arson and all of that. So a lot of cases do get reviewed based on new science. Now, I don't know if this was a new science, Rabia. Their conviction did not rest on on any kind of scientific evidence right. showing that right. they were or were not abused. I mean, the whole issue of abuse didn't exist at the trial. That's what, and yeah, that's the problem. And th- that's the real problem. And they've already they've already appealed the fact that it wasn't the judge didn't allow it, right? Like they they went through the direct appeals through the state courts and said they've kind of exhausted that issue is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I don't know if the, I don't know now if this is now in front of the uh, Superior Court uh, of California. I don't know now if this would fly procedurally. I'm just, I, I'm just not sure. I could be wrong, but you know what? Look, uh, if their lawyer believes they have, you know, the legal grounds, then I, maybe I they would do. argue that that is new scientific evidence, I would argue that we didn't know the mental, the physical implications of continual sexual assault. He used a, a toothbrush. He'd have a tube of Vaseline and he just played with me. Did you do something to your brother? <laughs> yes. What did you do to your brother? I took him out to the woods whenever I felt, I don't know. I took uh, a toothbrush also and I played with Eric in the same way. And I'm sorry. Hearing these testimonies are gut-wrenching and hearing the parts of their testimonies, whereas people were just kind of rolling their eyes. Oh, boys don't do this to boys. And they really harped on Eric's sexuality because Eric was abused from age 6 to 18. Lyle was abused from age 6 to 8. And they kept harping on the fact that Eric was homosexual. I don't think those things would fly today. And I think we know so right, much but you're, more. You once I again, would... you keep referring to the first trial. None of this happened at the second trial. That's why the problem, that's the problem is that there's no nothing to attack because it didn't even exist in the second trial. The second thing is the reason a court would not consider this new evidence is because this was not used to convict them. Like when you, when you, when you go, when you are filing a post-conviction appeal and you have new science that shows that what was used to convict these boys was bullshit, like bite mark evidence or blood splatter evidence or whatever, hair matching evidence, like, you know, whatever, all this ballistic stuff that we know is bullshit now. Um, if, if, if something was presented as scientific evidence and used in a conviction, you can then try to attack that conviction years later with new, new science. 
it just it that the issue doesn't exist. Like pretend the first trial didn't happen because that's what we have to actually yeah. do. And so you're dealing with a trial in which none of this existed. Yeah. So can they say like it should have been let in or can they still like I guess I'm just hung up on can they even bring it up because it wasn't ruled on. It was it's not it doesn't exist. This is what I'm not sure about because yeah. the the they've already they have already appealed the fact that it wasn't allowed in. They did that when they appealed the conviction the direct the direct appeal is what this is a post conviction right. appeal in which you bring new evidence. The direct appeal is like the judge got this wrong, the judge got this wrong. They tried that and they they lost all those appeals. I'm going to um, for you guys, I'm going to go to where it says evidence used in trial because I yeah, I want to yeah. explain to our listeners the evidence that was used in the first trial that was not included in the second. Just to give you a picture, because it's not just stories of abuse. We're also talking about medical records. There was there was a record when Eric was seven years old and an inexplicable injury to the back of his throat. Oh. And Dr. Carrie English testified that this type of injury is an indication of oral copulation in children. And now dentists are trained to look for this injury in children to be able to detect and report abuse. Not allowed. Confessions that the boys made to their family, their cousin Diane was told by Lyle at nine that he was, quote, afraid of his dad. Jeff, I have an audio clip here, but I'll say it right now. Afraid that his dad was going to come in his room and his dad had been touched. Him and his dad had been touching each other down there. When Lyle told me about the abuse, he was eight years old at the time. One night uh, I was in my room changing the sheets on my bed and Lyle came in saying that he was afraid to sleep in his own bed because his father and him had been touching each other down there. And I went upstairs and got Kitty. By her demeanor, I could tell that she was not believing any of this. That was straight to his cousin. Again, the cousin Andy that testified about his dad massaging his genitals. Also, the testimony of their cousins, Alan and Kathleen, who spent the summers at the Menendez home and testified that he would take the boys into their room and forbid the cousins from going down the hall. And they would hear cries and groans coming from the bedroom and that Kitty would turn the TV volume on high to stop them from hearing anything. They also testified, those same cousins, that Jose and the boys took showers together. Also not admitted. I'm just trying to get everyone's mind around it. They also, that cousin Diane testified that Kitty would go to the bathroom and help Lyle shower when he was 14 years old. And all of those expert testimonies I, I said at the beginning, I just can't wrap my head around it. I see what you're saying from a legal sense. I just don't understand how there's not a way to say we have epically let these people down. They have served their time. I, like, where is this judge? Can I talk to him? I'll tell you what I think. I mean, I, I, and I, and again, look, I mean, I'm sure they have a whole legal team and you have to strategize sometimes, you know, you have to say we could file this, this, these are the things we could file and decide which one you're going to try first. Right. And you try the one, the habeas is what I would try first because get them a new trial. That's your best bet because at a new trial, they could probably just be completely acquitted, right? Um, if that didn't work, then what I what I would think is that this this kind of evidence, 
okay, I'm just uh, let's just let's say this evidence, this new evidence, was actually presented at the trial. Their best case scenario in that case would not be that they would not be convicted of anything. They might be convicted of manslaughter, right? That's the best case scenario. They kill them. They would not have been just walked out. They definitely kill them. So I think this could be the basis, for example, for a motion for a resentencing or a new sentence or a reduced sentence, something like that, I think might, might be more possible with this kind of new evidence. I don't think that this evidence would get, is going to get them a new trial. I just don't think so. Do you think they should? That they should get a new trial? Yeah. A thousand percent. Of course they should. This was fundamentally, they, they did not, they, they are due, they're due process. They were deprived of due process. They did not get to present a defense at all. It's shocking. And what year was the um, direct appeal? Do we know? Oh, we know, Maggie. Hold on. Let me go to the appeal Because it's usually, it's usually the first one. What color is that? Yeah. What color is that? Um, <laughs> the first appeal was filed June 1st, 1996. That was after the conviction before the sentencing. Yeah. And then the California Court of Appeals held up that conviction again in February 27, yep. 1998. And so that particular ruling- in May. Yeah. So that real ruling, I'm, I'm just going to read exactly what it says. The court's opinion established no new precedents and found that Judge Weisberg made no errors in a series of controversial rulings, right, that limited the defense testimony. So they have appealed the fact that the, the judge did not allow them um, to bring in the defense. They lost on both appellate levels. They lost in the California Court of Appeals and the California Supreme Court on this particular issue. They've exhausted that issue. I object. <laughs> I, I wish it worked like that, Ellen. I object. It Judge is, Ellen. Yeah. It it's true. It infuriating. About, it is. Yeah. Ellen, this people. is why I'm working out of a bar right now. This is what we no. do every day. <laughs> I know. And those fucking oh. prosecutors that were denying appeals. This one really pissed me off. The prosecutors were absolutely disgusting because the way I watched both boys' entire testimony from beginning to end, I could not turn it off while wow. I was researching this. Yeah. And the detail, the emotion, you just, number one, you can't fake that. The fact that they absolutely denied the abuse is not only a gross miscarriage of justice, it is just inhumane yeah. and cruel yeah. like the prosecution went as far to challenge because eric had said something like um that he kept a jar of vaseline mm -hmm. by the bed right as lubrication because he did you know have penetration and it hurt him and then the prosecutors were like well maybe you just had blisters on your hand from playing tennis yeah. Uh, how how do you not just like set fire to the courtroom when somebody says that? And I just don't think in 2023 that kind of behavior would fly. I, I just don't. I can't imagine it. No, it wouldn't. And that's why I was asked. So the direct appeal is always the first appeal filed. So that's why I knew it was going to be older. And like, it, like, that just makes no sense to me that like we didn't even have 30 years ago this level of understanding so like how is that even fair that the appeal it's just great it just i yeah that i'm i'm really curious to see how this is going to play out i wrote them too and told them i support them both and it's just oh that's great i've thought about that yeah I did they write me. back they wrote back to rosie o'donnell they did not write back to me so you know i'm not rosie o'donnell well let me ask you this maggie i mean 
there's no real mystery in this case necessarily, right? There's not a lot to solve. I feel like everybody's kind of on the same page looking at this through a 2023 lens. And I don't know, Ellen, how did you feel about this? Well, you were well, you were like three when this came out. I don't know how old you were. You were a tiny baby. I was two. Yeah. I was, I was yes. not born. <laughs> so you didn't have any. I was. I was three years from being born. Well, let me ask you this. Okay, let's say before you started your research and watching the documentary and watching the testimony, did you have a, like, was your, did you have a different idea about this case? Did you think of these, like, these I, killer I boys? I had an idea yeah. that that they deserved a new trial, but researching you you and did. hearing the testimony it's an injustice, actually. It is all an actual injustice. I think that judge was despicable. I think it was so unfair to not... I, Lyle didn't even testify in the second one. Mm. Only Eric did. And they wouldn't even let his testimony from the first trial go to the second trial. What are we trying to do here? Are we trying to have justice be served? Or are it, it seems like... I think this is one of the most unfair things I have ever seen because they were prevented from giving the jury the whole story, right? I mean, if you were to get the whole story and you were to say, you know what? I still think they believe they deserve life in prison. Okay. Yeah. I don't agree with you, but I have to accept that. But it's like, it's like if I ask you something, Maggie, and I'm like, just tell me what happened, but don't tell me any circumstances around it. There's always a circumstance. These kids feared for their lives. So a couple days before they they proceeded to murder their family, their parents took them shark boat fishing. And they thought they were going to get killed that day. Wow. Even the captain said the boys didn't leave the bow of the boat. They like clung on to each other. There was no interaction. The boys were convinced they were going to throw them out to sea and kill them because Lyle said, I'm going to expose all of this because mm -hmm. you're not letting Eric go to college. And Eric had never told Lyle and Lyle was ready to blow it up. And so then Jose and Kitty lost their minds and they were like, they're 100% going to kill us. Yeah. Because they were multi-millionaires. They had a place in Beverly Hills society. You think they want them uncovering the fact that they were raping their kids their entire year? Well, I think they them. I think they knew, you know, obviously with the Menudo stuff too. I mean, a lot many of those boys were sexually assaulted, not just Roy Rosello. Um they knew it was going to be a house of cards. <laughs> That's what it was mm -hmm. going to be. I, there was no hiding that. Yeah. So why wouldn't those boys, knowing what their father is capable of, knowing what they've done to them, those boys, and also Jose was like a philanderer. He had women. He had men. Kitty turned a blind eye. Everyone Everyone was scared of Jose. Mm. People he worked with, people he worked for. He was a maniacal, scary man. Why would those boys, after being assaulted the way they were by the people that are supposed to protect them, think that they were not capable of killing them? Yeah. Ellen, I'm sure you know of um, prosecutorial immunity. Tell everyone about it, Maggie. I'm a lawyer, so I know that. <laughs> I know. I, that's why I said you, I'm sure you know. Um <laughs> Yeah, basically, uh, what is going to happen? Let's assume they get a new trial and they're, you know, acquitted, whatever the decision is going to be, manslaughter, time served. 
what is going to happen to the original prosecutor and judge who, you know, I think a lot of us can agree there was some really egregious things happening. What's going to happen? Nothing. Because we have this really exciting thing called prosecutorial immunity, where basically police, prosecutors, judges, most law enforcement gets a pass when they uh, commit wrongdoings. Yeah. Well, I'll say this, you know, uh, the interesting thing about that is even like you can't even get to that issue unless and until you can make a claim of actual prosecutorial right. miscon misconduct, like right. they did something. And there actually isn't misconduct here. What they did was they used the law to keep keep out what they wanted to keep out. So they had a foot up at the trial and the judge. It's not like misconduct would have been like they have some some witnesses that they hid yeah, yeah, from the defense. Totally. Here, but they it, didn't let them. They didn't let the witnesses testify. They no, didn't let. How but they did not. Of the no, no, she but, means oh, like a Brady not, violation or something like that. A Brady, like right. Wrong. So if they if they if they went to the witnesses outside the courtroom and said, "Don't testify. I'll give you a whatever X Y Z." That's an illegal way of preventing them from not testifying. If they just went to the judge and said, "I am moving to prevent." you know, these, this testimony and the judge says, okay, that's a completely legal way of preventing it. So, um, there, even in this case, I mean, immunity, like they're, they're the, all these prosecutors are probably judges at this point anyways, but you know, I just realized that I never actually got to finish my question. I, I was, I started off saying, Maggie, there's no mystery here, but what, okay. so then what is it about this case that like, you're like, this is the one I have to do. I, I really want to talk about this case. Is it because of the, the, the incredible injustice in it? I think because the incredible injustice, I think because this is still a topic that I think a lot of people, um, many people, I mean, I, you know, we live in New York City and, and we live in metro regions, but I'm sure there are people in this country who still don't believe that boys can be raped. Um, mm. I mean, we literally had politicians calling it legitimate rapes a few years ago right. about women. Right. Um, so I do think it's very important. You know, this case is one that everyone knows. It's, it's really one of those kind of household crime names. And now we're seeing uh, a lot happened that people can learn from. People can learn about what a habeas is. People can learn that they're not getting the full story in trials. People, you know, can learn about the psychological effects of abuse. Um, I think that's why I really wanted to talk about it. I think it's it's fascinating, the psychology. I think hearing them talk now is also really interesting. Um, I think sharing uh, Roy Rossello's story is important. Um, telling people to watch the documentary so they can hear Roy's story. He deserves to be heard as well. Um, I think there's a lot here that that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Something that really stood out to me when I was re-watching the testimonies, and I don't know if this is intentional or I don't know if this is a sign of the times, but they kept saying, when your dad had sex with you. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh. If uh, I, I I am a cold running person, I am always cold. And the way my body inflamed itself when they kept saying have sex with rather than assault or rape or they all the time. And that puts things in somebody's mind. And again, pushing that narrative that Eric was gay, that he had homosexual urges. It just I just kept saying this would never happen now. Mm -hmm. It would never happen now. Mm -hmm. And and you're right. Like hearing them talk now, Maggie, they are pillars of the, the prisons, which, by the way, also something very disgusting was intentionally separating them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They that were in for, for 20 years. They sent mm -hmm. them to two 
opposite places. They could only write letters and they finally reunited them after 20 years they hadn't seen each other. I got chills just even saying that. But it just seemed like that spoiled rich kid narrative that they got on. And listen, they were like, you know, they were kind of like little shits and they had done some robbery and Lyle was kicked out of Princeton for plagiarism. They were troubled kids. They were kids acting out. You know, you think people have everything when they have money, but they were not likable characters. You know, that's funny, too, because I know, Robbie, you know Marty Tancliffe. Uh, yeah. Marty Tancliffe is an exoneree, and it was also a spoiled rich kid story murdering his parents. Um, and yep. Marty wasn't particularly a likable character either back then. He was a yeah. spoiled rich kid. Um, so it's really interesting how the narrative gets twisted. And he was 16. I mean, yeah. what can you know about, a, you know, like the, the personality right. or character of somebody That's what at I want to say. Like, old. I think it's yeah. really important for people to really watch out for these narratives because that's yeah. two mm-hmm. cases where that was not the case. I mean, I, I have said for a long time that, you know, the thing about court is and the media in general, but but certainly inside court, the best story wins. It's not. A, it's never. It's never about the actual truth because no. you're not getting the full truth. Both sides are fighting to keep out certain certain things, and that's just how it is. You, and and that's why, like decades later, as we like discover all this new stuff. I mean, what I what I love seeing from Ellen is like the outrage. Um, you're and I'm watching the comments of our, you know, our star witnesses, um, the outrage they feel that this new evidence wouldn't rise to the level. But in post-conviction work, you can have new DNA evidence that shows that a serial killer did it, and a court's gonna say, nope, not good enough. Prosecutors gonna say, nope, not good enough. I mean, like when you have sound like actual forensic evidence linking a murder to somebody else, and and that per- that person can't get a new trial. The outrage is valid, and uh, believe me. There's a lot of reasons to have it because this is what this is. This is a deep problem in our system. We get stuck. How do we fix it, Rabia? I mean, the the way to fix it. Th- these are generally legislative fixes, right? Like, so, like you, if if we can, but it's like a state by state fight. Like, for example, in, in Maryland, we got to we were lucky enough to pass the Juvenile Restoration Act a few years ago, right? That allowed juveniles who were um, convicted and sentenced to life without parole to apply for resentencing. It's a new law that just gives juveniles another shot in court, right? You guys should so listen need- to Suave, my podcast. That's what it's about. It's an, ama- <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing podcast. Um, so, you know, you, it, these are legislative fixes that you say, okay, if you have these kinds of issues and then you have 30 years later, a whole new understanding of certain things like trauma, like can we develop, can we legislate a basis for a new appeal, like in state courts. There's no reason you can't do that. Can we just come yeah. up with a whole new reason that 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 will allow people to get their foot back in the door in in, in the appellate courts? Yeah. I mean, sadly, I know that sounds like a really long shot, but it's not. It can happen. You can make legislative changes to give people more chances. Let me ask you a question that we posed in the crash course. What conversation would we be having now if it was the Menendez sisters? Mm. You know what? I, I actually don't think it would have made a difference. And I'll tell you why. Because we have seen how female victim survivors of rape have been treated in court as well. It becomes about their, their how they dress and were they asking for it? And and you know, if you had two young girls who were also rich and spoiled and good good looking, and I mean, I don't think female victims of sexual assault necessarily garner much more sympathy 
than male victims do. Uh, Thirty years ago, they certainly didn't. Maybe now, I write a bobbit. Same same time period. Same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know if it would. I don't think it would made a difference actually. See, I feel like the the court of public opinion would have been different. Again, with the keeping all of the facts the same, you know, the getting kicked out of Princeton, the burglary, I think there is some bit of you can qualify that, right? A man shouldn't hurt a woman, but a man's not going to hurt another man. That's that's not it. Here's what I imagine. Yeah. Boys right. can't Boys be raped. raped. You know, I just feel like it. it the, I feel like the, you're absolutely right, Rabia. Of course, women yeah. don't get the respect and they get yeah. slut shamed and they well, get. And uh, sexualized. Uh, I imagine. I imagine yeah. if they were beautiful, two beautiful young white girls, which you know what I mean? They would have been sexualized in the media. If, you know, if their name, somebody's name was Hillary, it would have been like hot Hillary enters the courtroom. I mean, like, like that's like Amanda we, Knox. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's just how I think. It would have gone. I mean, because at the end of the day, all the people are thinking is they kill their parents. I mm. mean, like that's that's an established like you can't get around that fact. And if they kill their parents, like that's like the kind of the worst thing a person could possibly do. So it just means everything else about the character is probably also deeply flawed. I mean, I I don't know. It's like it's you know how hard it is to get a rape conviction. <laughs> you know, it's hard. I mean, and in this case, there, it wasn't even a rape. It wasn't a. It's not like they were. This was not a trial to prove that the father was raping anybody, right? Like, but if they had, if they had gone to the police, these boys had gone to the police, or if they were daughters and gone to the police to turn their father in instead of killing him, I don't even know if they could have gotten a conviction. What do you think, Maggie? Uh, if they went to the police, they wouldn't have been believed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if they went to the police yeah. prior to killing them, saying this is happening to us, they wouldn't have been believed, yeah. and they probably would have wound up. Twenty twenty-three, maybe, and that. Yeah. And that is what they said. You know, when they said, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you tell somebody? He, both Lyle and Eric said, we did, but my dad is powerful. He got Eric off from those burglary charges by making a couple calls and writing some checks. Mm. He's like, they burgled homes. They stole like $100,000 worth of stuff in Calabasas and he got him off. He's powerful. He's rich. And people are scared of him. They were also told no one would believe them. They they believed yeah. no one would believe. And then any for everyone that knew never helped. And they knew yeah. that the only way out was if they were going to help themselves, which wound up being what they did. But they were let down by everybody. Every single person let them down in their lives. No one came to save them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, let me ask you a question. If they hadn't done that spending spree... Okay, just to give an idea. So the brothers spending spree started four days after the murder and they were tapping into Jose's life insurance. They spent about a million dollars in a six month period of time. They charged the cards. They bought Rolexes, Porsches, clothing. Uh, Lyle bought a restaurant. He he bought like a restaurant called um I never knew he bought a restaurant that's crazy. Yeah. It was called Chuck Spring Cafe and it was like a really popular snack shop at like the Princeton area and he paid I think half a million dollars for it somewhere around there. And and then he changed the name and they're like why are you changing the name? This is a Princeton favorite whatever. And they were just acting absolutely wild. Do you think if they hadn't have done that for the six month period of time, because they weren't being investigated at all. So 
it should be said, we'll go over a lot more of these facts on a couple more things on our Patreon. But the for those of you who don't know, the way that the Menendez brothers were brought into custody and investigated in the first place was because Eric confessed to the murders to his psychiatrist, Dr. Jerome Ozell, and that was on October 31st, 1989. And the reason he went and talked to a psychiatrist was he was having suicidal ideation, Mm. keeping this secret, killing his parents. And then he told Lyle immediately that he confessed. Lyle threatened the doctor basically said he would kill him if he told anyone. And Ozell didn't go straight to the police. He had them come in a couple more times. And then Ozell's ex-girlfriend found out about it. Her name was Dudalon Smythe, I think her name was. And she's the one who went to the police. Mm. And then they were brought into custody and they were um, they were arrested separately. Lyle was arrested March 8th, 1990, and then Eric turned himself in three days later on March 11th. So that is how they came to be arrested. So without that confession, who knows how much longer it would have gone. But do you think if their actions weren't as sort of pompous and gregarious as they were, they wouldn't have such a bad outlook from the court and from the judge and use that kind of gross behavior to prosecute them? I mean, they would have had to have a a different motive. Uh, I don't know what that would have been. I mean, I mean, the motive here, I mean, it was presented that it was it was they killed him for the money. Right. right? That's what I mean. They would have have a different motive. Yeah. And the jury bought it. The jury's like, yeah, like, look at how, you know, extravagant they are. The first thing they're doing is like killing all this money, which I'm guessing a lot of teenagers would probably do um, because they have no idea like how to deal with all this money. It's undisputed that they that they killed them like they found the weapons. Right. They tried. They bought the guns themselves. You know, this is how. Young people are not real smart when they're doing this stuff like this, right? And, um, you know, all the jury already knew. I mean, they, 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 there was it was just about, like, why did they do it? And if there's no self-defense argument made, like, none of it matters. Unless, like, in the moment they could have been like, unless they could have argued that in that moment their lives were in danger. That's the only possible self-defense I think they could have raised without the sexual assault. Because even, even when the sexual assault uh, evidence was brought in, that's that's what people were the response was well they could have left. It's not like he was in the middle. It was like right then and there they they had a, a threat to their lives, right? Like they 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 had other options in terms of how to like escape this stuff. Um and people don't understand like they, well they didn't understand then how how that trauma works and affects you. And they're both been sentenced to to oh, life sentences. Um, do you, do you know, uh, Ellen, in your research, did you, did you come across whether or not, um, there was any attempt to get a death sentence? Because I believe. Yes. Right. There they was, were, yes. In yeah, the they, second one, yeah. they deliberated whether or not it would be the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. What do you think about Lyle's jury being hung six men and six women? Mm. That is fascinating is, to me. Yeah. And they were deadlocked. Nobody was moving. I read um, I read some accounts by some of the jury members who, uh, they were female, and they just, nobody was moving. What do you think about that? Doesn't surprise me, actually. Mm-hmm. That doesn't surprise me. I think, you know, Rabia, maybe you could speak to this, but when they do 
when attorneys do jury selections, I think they often find that women are usually more sympathetic in these instances than men are. And that's not me yeah. saying that. I think that's usually what happens. It's, it is very interesting to me that it was so neatly split. I, I, I'm actually a little bit surprised at that, but, but, but I wonder when they did the voir dire, um, which is, you know, that's when the attorneys get to, on both sides, get to eliminate potential jurors because, you know, like, do you know, you know, one of the parties, do you have any other kind of compromises that, you know, something that might compromise you? And I wonder if during voir dire, they asked whether anybody um, was, was a survivor or had experienced sexual assault. I mean, I, I wonder if they had not done that, I wonder if there were women in that jury who are like, they could see the truth of what happened because they had been on the receiving end of it themselves. Like they had experienced it themselves. I mean, we know the statistics, six women, one of them probably is likely um, a, a survivor. And, but is that one woman able to convince all six women? I don't know. I, I also wonder how many of them were mothers. I feel like when a mother watches that, you can kind of see the little boys in them. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm fascinated. Do, but Ellen, you said that there, there were interviews with some of those female jurors later. And yeah. um, and what, what were the kinds of things that they said? Why were they holding out? Well, this is really interesting. A lot of them were saying, a lot of the men were saying, if it was just Jose, but why did they kill Kitty? Oh, yeah. We haven't so talked then, about that yet. We haven't talked yeah. about that yet. So the thing was, Jose was the aggressor, mm. but the boys Number one, absolutely say that Kitty enabled the behavior, yep. knew about the behavior, and Lyle also said that he was sexually assaulted by his mother, yeah. that she would lay in bed and make him touch her, mm. and that Kitty could have protected them, and they didn't. So what they were saying was that they could, okay, so if your dad did all these horrible things... You killed your mom to get the money, though, mm. because if you would have mm. killed your dad, you were scared of your dad. Your dad was the powerful one. And he did. He ran the show like, you, you know, but Kitty absolutely enabled it. But they couldn't wrap their head around that. So why didn't you just kill him and spare her? Because remember, when they committed the acts, when they came in and killed them, Jose was shot six times. Eric was the one who shot first, but Lyle is the one who actually shot the the deadly bullets. Kitty was shot 10 times, but Lyle's, they ran out of ammunition and Kitty was struggling for her life and was not dead. And Lyle went back to the car, got ammunition, and Lyle shot the final fatal shot to her face mm. that finally killed her. So that's what made them say, mm -mm, this was all about money. Yeah. What do you think about that, Maggie? When you frame it like that, you can see how they, yeah, you know, the shot to the face, the going back to the car. How could you say, you know, it wasn't a, a moment of what the defense was trying to say. None of this was planned, you know, but that, that gives a different picture. Um, but, I do know, and, and you'll probably say this in your synopsis too, but they had just found out that Jose was not allowing Eric to go to college. Um, that was a thing that had just happened that kind of was the catalyst. And then Kitty had said that she allegedly said that she knew to them. And that's when they realized she knew this mm. whole time. There was a direct catalyst to this 
moment of what happened. And it was, we are trapped in this forever. So I don't know what was going through their heads when they shot them 10 times, went back, reloaded, shot them in the face. I was never been in that situation, but there were catalysts for this moment. It wasn't out of, you know, it happens because. I'm curious as to if the the male jurors were like, well, that's where we draw the line, (laughs) you know, the kitty part. Um, How did the female, how come the female jurors saw that different? Because she enabled it Mm -hmm. and she denied it because the night that Eric finally told Lyle, this has still been going on. Lyle did not know because Jose said, I will kill you. I will Mm -hmm. kill your brother if you tell anyone. And that's why Lyle really breaks down in his testimony because he's like, I knew but I didn't know. And so Lyle said, gut wrenching. It is absolutely gut wrenching. So he said, I'm going to go take care of it. So he talked to Kitty first. Lyle talked to Kitty and Eric remembers hearing the fight and they were throwing hands. So Lyle wore um, a hairpiece, like Mm -hmm. a toupee because Jose made him because he didn't want any son of his having a receding hairline. Kitty and him started fighting and Kitty ripped off his toupee. And Eric was like, you wear a toupee? Like he remembers these counts. And Kitty was saying, Eric is a liar. He's always been a liar. So then in that moment, Lyle's like, and you're a monster too. Mm -hmm. And then that's when Lyle went to Jose and said, we know everything this stops or we tell everyone. Mm. And then a couple days later was that shark fishing shark thing. Trip, yeah. So this just kept escalating. And what yeah. escalated it was the fear of divulging these family secrets. And Kitty was in on it all. Yeah, yeah, she was. And she sexually assaulted Lyle. Yeah. I mean, I think to the boys, the, it, it was it was like a team of predators. Like, you know, yeah. they were in it together. Kitty knew she allowed it. Um, but, you know, there, there's also, I think, the, you know, I don't even see this as like revenge because, you know, they've both been uh, abusing um, a lot, uh, Eric all these years. But I do think like th- there was this legitimate fear that the, our parents are going to kill us. They're going to, there's no way that. out. I, yeah, because what way is out? For, yeah. for the parents. If the parents yeah. are like, they're going to tell people, like, they're getting old enough now. We do not have the kind of control we had when they were little. I mean, there's, they probably saw that we're going to end up dead. And you know what? They might have been right. Yeah. yeah. They might have been right. I mean, like, because really a, a man like Jose, I mean, like, if he, if he had to protect himself, I mean, like, considering what he was capable of doing. I don't know if he wouldn't have. I mean, he he clearly thought of his children as disposable anyways. I was going to say someone else in this chat way earlier mentioned Laura Richards. And she, I really appreciate the work she does on coercive control. Yeah. And she did a six-part series on this case and the boys. And, oh. and very specifically what happened that led up to this in terms of coercive control. And I, I would suggest people yeah. listen to that. It's really thought-provoking for sure, to say the least. That's a fantastic recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Well – Let's solve this. Let me ask a a series of questions to solve this. Do we think that Lyle and Eric Menendez received a fair trial? No. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Do we think that they should be let off with time served? Like in an ideal world, what would happen 
in this next appeal if you could write the history of the rest of well, the story? Well, there's two there's two things, right? Time served would mean they're still convicted felons. That yeah. is still on their record. If they go to trial, sure, they have the chance of being convicted again. However, if they win, it's gone. They are not convicted felons anymore. So it's like, what is what? I mean, it would obviously be what they want. So I, I don't know. Do they just want to, a lot of people just want to get out? They just want to live their lives. I mean, these guys are yeah. what, in their 50s now? Yeah. I mean, They're going through another trial could take yeah. years. Um, and the other thing is like in a new trial, a prosecutor might be able to be like, okay, fine. Like, well, look, this is what, if they were awarded a new trial, a prosecutor would have to think, okay, I'm probably not going to get them on murder, right? Like, so they'll be acquitted of that. So then I'd have to present an alternate um, an, an alternate, you know, possible charge like manslaughter. And if they're convicted of manslaughter, well, they've already done the time for that. Yeah. My guess is if they if they were actually granted a new trial, my guess is they'll be offered that shitty old Alfred plea <laughs> um, just so everybody can just get, be let off the hook. And um, yep. and it's the fastest way out of prison, yep. basically. And that's my guess as to what what would go down. I just, I don't know, the habeas is looking thin to me, but I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I hope you're wrong too. I do hope you're wrong. This- I was feeling really good about it. <laughs> I'm like, I don't feel good about it at all. No, I, I, I could be really wrong. And you know what? I, I'm actually going to go and see if I can find some actual legal analysis, like from a California legal expert about the habeas, because I could be completely wrong. I don't know California law, certainly. I mean, so, but I'm just speaking in very general terms. Do we know um, who their attorneys are? Mark Garagos. Yeah, Mark Garagos, and- Cliff Gardner. And so, and okay. someone else. Yeah, I just, is a good attorney. I mean, yeah. Listen, you guys, I'm going to tell you something. And I want to trust you with this information. Oh, God. Here we go. I'm leaning in. I'm not actually a lawyer. <laughs> but I want to scream from a non-lawyer person, this is not fair. Yeah. This is just not fair. That's all I I was so invested in this research because I have never seen somebody say it's like asking someone to you get if, if something takes place over an hour and I give you three minutes worth of information, make a decision. No, I have I have 57 more minutes worth of shit to tell you. Mm. Yeah. It just does not seem fair. I know there's this is what you both do all the time. You both work in wrongful convictions and it just it never ceases to amaze me yeah. how our judicial system is so back ass words and back ass words. I love cruel. That. Um wait to wait till I tell you about how secret evidence is has been used uh, after the Patriot Act to convict hundreds of people. Yeah. That means evidence the state puts on that the defense is never allowed to see. That's a thing. It's insane. It is wild. We're going to continue this conversation and we'll go a little bit more chronologically into some of the information of the trial and things of that nature on a couple more things on our Patreon. So hopefully Maggie can join us back for that as well. And I could just talk about this forever. But yeah, Robbie, you did kind of take the wind out of my sails a little bit today. But that's what you're here for. You're here for a little bit of a dose of reality. Yeah, the reality yeah. check from Robbie. And and so I'm what sorry. I want to say, actually, that I always say is, you know, Ellen, you're talking about the, how the system is backwards. It is working exactly how it was intended to. Uh, yeah. It was created by white men for white men. Um, I... Want, everyone should go and listen to Erased, the murder of Elma Sands. It's the first um, trial in the United States, first murder trial in United States history. It was Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Um, 
It's an incredible podcast, and it was about a woman who was murdered in New York, and our entire system is set up on sexism. It's a fun podcast to listen to. Everyone should listen to it. Erased. Erased. The murder of Elma Sands. It's actually Jason Flom's daughter, Allison. It's incredible. Allison Williams is in it. It's really good. Um, But that said, if you want to know how our system was set up, it's working how it was intended to. So if Mm -hmm. you want to change it, everyone needs to vote, vote judges, vote Um, progressive prosecutors, like Robbie was talking about, vote for people who are going to enact legislation to make change. That is what you can do because it's not broken. It is actually working exactly how it's supposed to be. And the law, I mean, like we literally learned this in law school, the law values finality. Finality is like what courts want. They want to be like, done. Close the book, put it away, never look at it again. We don't want to revisit stuff. Yeah. Something I learned I didn't even know was that prosecutors are pretty much like required to uh, to fight the appeals on uh, to yeah, a certain extent. They have, they have to for the integrity of the conviction, which obviously is bullshit. But finality. Um, yeah, finality. There's they, they have to. I am so glad you chose this case, Maggie, and we will yeah. definitely continue the conversation on our Patreon. I just love that you guys were so passionate about it. Imagine I picked a case yeah. and you were like, that is we don't care. It's it's <laughs> really it's it's a lot. There is a great documentary. We watched it the other night with our Patreon listeners. I think it's called Truth and Lies. There's that new show, Monsters, that's coming out um, on Netflix. This this is a very important case. Yeah. I just think of the way how we've evolved as people and the things that we talk about and how we talk about it. Yeah. I just feel like it would just be a totally different case in 2023. Yeah. So I can't wait to chat more about it. I can guarantee that there are thousands and thousands more like it. Thousands more cases in which people yep. who fought finally fought back against like their attackers and against their assaulters like are are rotting in prison and like we just don't know about them. But you know, if there's some precedent, you That's, know, we set yeah. some precedent, maybe maybe they'll get another chance too. But or legislation New legislation can give people new chances. Maggie, will you tell our Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case listeners where they can find you, where they can connect, and how they can support you and all of your upcoming projects? Yep. So I'm generally mostly on Instagram, Maggie Freeling, Twitter, Maggie Freeling. Um, basically, if you just search Maggie Freeling, there's only one of me. There's no other. So that's how you find me. Um, you and- are definitely singular, Maggie. Yes, you, you are one of a kind. Thanks. I appreciate it. Actually, Ellen, something really funny. I don't I don't know if you watch Key and Peel, um, but there's this Love whole you. yeah, there's the whole skit with like President Obama's like anger management guy. I, I will, <laughs> I'm going to send this to you because before when yes. you were like, I just want to scream. I was thinking of just having you next to me for moments where like I want to scream and you just do the screaming for me. I'm going to send. <laughs> I'll do it. I'm going to send you this. I'll do skit. it. Yeah, I'll do yeah. it. And tell everyone about all of your upcoming projects and podcasts because there are just so many. Yes. So season three of Wrongful Conviction with me is coming out January. I've been busting my ass getting that done. There's some crazy cases. Um, I'm working on a spinoff long form on one of those, Quincy Cross out of Kentucky. We're working with the Kentucky Innocence Project on that. Um, That's a crazy case. The man will probably get out based on a a purple dildo receipt. Um, so look forward to that one in the new Ellen's year. Ellen's face. She loves a dildo story. Yeah. Good dildo story. Yeah. Love a dildo Ro- story. I just, any chance you get Robbie to say dildo, yes. you you won the day. You won the podcast. When this habeas, like, when they start ruling on it, they're going to have to talk yeah. about dildos in court. Like, this is going to have to happen. 
Yeah. I can't wait. I'm sorry. I, I want to be like the trans monster. I'd be like, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? <laughs> you repeat that. One more time. Dildo. Okay. Stay in the back. Is Dildo. It? What size? What color? <laughs> well, Maggie Freeling, you are a gem. We absolutely adore having you. You're amazing, Maggie. And we will continue our conversation on the Patreon. If you would like to join our Patreon, please find us at www.patreon.com slash Rabia and Ellen. That is where we do a couple more things. We also do our watch parties. We do them all the time lately. And we have a little bit more fun with you. You also get About Damn Crime every other week. There is ad-free options there for you as well. And of course, you can be one of our star witnesses and you can sit in the jury box and watch our live recordings, which yeah. we absolutely do love. And you can find us on socials at Rabia and Ellen uh, everywhere you want to connect with us on socials we really do appreciate hearing from you and Rabia tell them where they can find you on social media I am uh, on Instagram at Rabia squared the number two I am just my name on Facebook and the site that used to be Twitter I'm not there a whole lot so don't even worry about that but um, I do want to say don't forget we're on YouTube now so if you're listening to this you can actually watch us do all this you can look at beautiful Maggie and her amazing tattoos um, and uh, you can see Ellen rolling her eyes at me and uh, so go to YouTube subscribe <laughs> to us please subscribe to our YouTube and uh, and also to the podcast give us some ratings all five and stars join our Facebook group yeah, yeah. yeah have tons of things going on there. We talk about about damn crime. You guys bring us stories all the time. We love talking about these cases in a more broad way. We have great, excellent, productive, supportive conversations there. So find us in our discussion group on Rob on Facebook, Rabia and Ellen. And there's a picture of us. Don't be fooled by any other Facebook pages mm -hmm. because they're fan accounts there to <laughs> make fun of us. Until next time, thank you, Maggie Freeling. We adore you. Adore you guys. Thank you. So thank, you. thank you, Maggie. Thank you so much to our jury box and our star witnesses for joining us live here in the studio. And I love you to bits, Rabia Chaudhary. Love you too, Ellen. See you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. <laughs>